Support for this broadcast of Two Rivers 30 Minutes comes in part from a grant from Striffler's Family Funeral Homes. From TubeCityOnline.com, this is Two Rivers 30 Minutes, a weekly series of interviews with people making news around the McKeesport area. Produced by Tube City Community Media Incorporated, a nonprofit corporation. I'm Jason Toger, the executive director. On this show, we talk one-on-one with elected officials, community leaders, and others who are trying to make a difference in the Monyoc area. And we also take your questions and comments on Facebook and Twitter at Tube City Online. In March, we've been celebrating Women's History Month, something that has become more prominent with people that that we pay more attention to is the role that women have often played in defending the country. There was a presentation at the McKeesport Regional History and Heritage Center this past week that I thought was very interesting. It was on women's role in World War II, and the speaker was Denise Dean. She is a writer, artist, author, historian, and she joins us by phone from York, PA. Uh, Good morning, Denise. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good. So your talk on uh, this past Wednesday at the McKeesport Regional History Center was called This is My War Too, Winning the War with the Women's Army Corps. What was the Women's Army Corps? Uh, Younger folks may not be aware of it. Okay, so the Women's Army Corps was basically a group of women. They started out as volunteers, and they um, kind of were the auxiliary to the Army um, where they did clerical work, teletype work. Um, they originally had four jobs, laundry, cook, uh, teletype, and secretary. And by the end of the war, they were doing over 100 different jobs. Um, most of the uh, generals from in the military, Eisenhower, Omar Bradley, they all had wax work for them in their office as secretaries. Um, but you also get wax who work... Um, as mechanics and on aircraft and, you know, tank drivers and Jeep drivers and um, anything that happened behind the scenes. Um, they're, you know, the man behind, the women behind the man behind the gun, <laughs> so, so to speak. Is, is that actually what they were called? How did they recruit women to the, to the Women's Army Corps? Um, a bunch of different ways. So they had, you know, national campaigns on the radio. They had a little movie tone clips before when you went to see the movies. They also had magazine articles, and they had uh, newspaper articles. I have some examples from the, the Pittsburgh Sun Telegraph and the Pittsburgh Press, where basically it's a, you know, clip out this little coupon type thing, write your name down, and mail it in. And their initial recruitment drive went really well. Um, in Pittsburgh, they used the old Pittsburgh Post Office, mm-hmm. and they had o- over a thousand women who came on the first day, um, crowded the post office to get applications. Of them, about uh, 600 were returned, and 300 passed, I think it's the physical exam, and then 150 of them passed the mental exam. And then um, one local writer said, that she actually thought that's when the hard stuff started to happen. Um, <laughs> Meaning what? Um, they did personal interviews to make sure each of the girls fit a certain type, um, you know, that they had uh, the psychological makeup of being in the military and being an officer. 
one of the problems that they noted was that a lot of the women who were college educated also happened to be school teachers. So they okay. had to look for officers who weren't going to teach school to, you know, 10 year olds, that they were going to treat the women like women. So um, that was an interesting side note to, to the recruiting. But um, throughout the war, they had 150,000 women. And during that point, their goal was to recruit 90,000 in one weekend. And it failed miserably. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the, the quota for one week was like 2,000 in the greater Pittsburgh area. Um, at that time, you wouldn't have had a local recruiting station in McKeesport, right. for example. There, you would have gone into Pittsburgh. And in fact, we can tell that because when you get the roster list, you know, you look down and, and you've got women that are coming from, you know, Uniontown sure. and McKeesport and Monroeville and, and all of the little outside yeah. satellite towns. De- Denise Deems is our guest this morning. It's Women's History Month, and we're talking about uh, her presentation and her research into the Women's Army Corps during World War II. She just gave a presentation, which I believe you could watch online at mckeesportheritage.org. It's called This Is My War II, Winning the War with the Women's Army Corps. Uh, Denise, can you give us your website address, please, where people can reach out to you? Um, sure. It's uh, worldwar2soldier.com, mm-hmm. W-W-I-I, soldier. And that's uh, my company's website where I sell props and reproduction, army equipment, and various military and you know women's army themed items. Uh, and you're also on Twitter, I think, at uh, D Deems, D E E M S on Twitter, yeah, and 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 on Facebook as well. Tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you come to be interested in women's roles in World War II and beyond? Um, well, the big joke is that when I was 16, I was hell-bent to going into the Army, and I was told promptly by a recruiter that, hey, you have asthma. Mm. And I was like, yeah, is that a problem? And that was the end of my illustrious Army career. Uh. But um, I had been fascinated with the military ever since I was a little kid. And um, there's an air show out in Reading, PA, every year. It's a World War II air show where they bring in all kinds of aircrafts and they have a reenactment. And it's one of the largest reenactments in the United States. And I'm about an hour and a half away, maybe two-hour drive if traffic is bad. So my parents took me as a teenager, and I had a little bit of a theater background, and so I fell in love with reenacting. Um, and that's what kind of got me into research, researching women's roles. Before that, I was fascinated with airplanes. Mm-hmm. If it were up to me, the U.S. Army would still be flying B-17s. So, <laughs> uh-huh. what, 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 what attracts you to, to that era? Is it the technology, the, the, the music, the clothing? What, 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 what is so attractive for you and appealing for you? Um, if I said the whole thing, I wouldn't be lying. Uh-huh. Uh, I played in the jazz band in high school. I just, it was something, you know, both of my grandparents, my dad's father, who's actually from outside of Uniontown, um, was a Marine in the South Pacific. And so, and my mom's father uh, was in Japan after the war. And so, you know, I had the influence of them, but I also just had my own, 
fascination that came out of really nowhere. My mom kind of joked on the side that, you know, if reincarnation existed, it must be me. Um, <laughs> total side joke. But I was, I was obsessed with the movie Memphis Bell. Sure. And the movie League, and the movie League of Your Own as a kid. Mm-hmm. So the co- the combination of, you know, with sports, you know, it's Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and. And on the, you know, on the music side, you get all this great jazz that comes out of the era. And then there's all the classic movies. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you start putting things together and, and the theater geek in me and the music geek. <laughs> and, and then, and I was exposed to history a lot as a kid. My parents were really thought it was important that I experience history. So, you know, like we would go somewhere and the first thing they would do was find you know, whatever museum there was, which sometimes was the most boring part of the 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 trip. I was like, "Well, can't we go to the amusement park now?" But so, <laughs> where, where is your so, for, is your formal background? Your training in theater or in history or both? Um, actually, my formal training is in everything but theater, okay. uh, but history. Okay. Um, I I have an undergrad in music with a uh, minor in theater. Okay. And then. My postgraduate work is in writing and internet marketing. And your business, did you grow up in central Pennsylvania? Your business right now is in York, PA, correct? Correct. I did grow up in central PA. Okay. Um, I mean, in many ways, I'm the typical child of a transport. I'm sitting in my basement right now looking at all these Sports Illustrated Steelers covers that <laughs> line my wall. Um, so, you know, Pittsburgh is still very near and dear to my heart, even though. I live in Ravens country now. <laughs> Look, we have to take a quick 30-second break. When we come back, I want to ask you a little bit more about what you have learned with your research about women's role in World War II and also how that role evolved both before World War II and then afterwards, okay? Sure. Denise Deems is our guest this morning. She is a writer, artist, author, uh, entrepreneur. She owns a store called World War II Soldier, specializes in recreating items and uh, tracking down items related to women's service in World War II. She spoke to the McKeesport Regional History and Heritage Center uh, this past week. You can find Denise online at D Deems on Twitter or World War II Soldier, www. IISoldier.com. From the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation at downtown McKeesport, this is Two Rivers 30 Minutes. We'll be right back. Support for this broadcast comes from Striffler's Family Funeral Homes. Since 1866, Striffler's has provided compassionate professional memorial services for families in White Oak, McKeesport, Dravosburg, Portview, and the surrounding areas. Striffler's offers comprehensive pre-planning services and aftercare. And through its affiliated company, Design Monuments, Striffler's also provides permanent markers and memorials crafted in stone, bronze, and other high-quality materials. Learn more at Striffler's.com or call 4 There were women back to the Revolutionary War era in America. Um, Certainly there were women that that, uh, assisted in the Civil War, World War II. We've seen pictures probably of Florence Nightingale, for instance, uh, as a nurse in in World War I, I believe it was. But how did the role change in World War II? What, what, What kind of roles did women have in those previous battles? versus World War II? Well, actually, if we if we get in the Wayback Machine a little bit and go back to World War I, uh-huh. um, the biggest problem was that the typewriter came into existence, <laughs> and as well as the switchboard. And these at the time, other than being a nurse, 
were one of the few roles that women who were unmarried could hold. Um, they were considered women's work. So we're now on the eve of World War II, and General Pershing is getting ready to go, you know, over there to, to you know, go in at the last minute and save the war. And he discovers that, lo and behold, the Army does not have a strong signal corps base of teletypists and switchboard operators. And this is a really big deal because not only that, there aren't a ton of men in the United States who are trained in this because they were looking for women with pleasant voices on the phone who, you know, to operate the switchboards. And so at the time, the phone companies were actually privatized. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like they could, you know, call the government up and be like, hey, can I get a couple of hundred guys to run my switchboards? So what they ended up doing is contracting women and taking them overseas. And they're colloquial called the Hello Girls, because obviously they picked up the phone and said, hello, hello this is blah, blah, blah. So they go home, they go and they serve honorably. It was about 500 of them. And they're beloved by their units, and they're credited with saving guys' lives because all of a sudden there are telephones, so you can call in um, strikes and, and move troops around much easier. And they basically are gone, sent home after the war and said, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, those uniforms that you got and all that rank and rules and things that you followed, yeah, you know, that never happened. Just forget about that. You're huh. not, you weren't actually in the Army. Thanks, but no thanks. So they were, so, so if I can interrupt for just a second, Denise Deems is a historian, writer, and uh, entrepreneur. She creates props and researches the, the history of uh, women's roles in World War II. So... Wait, so they, they these women who had served honorably alongside the men in the armed forces during World War One, the war ends, and they are frozen out then of any kind of veterans' benefits or anything? Correct. Wow. They are just kind of kicked to the curb and told, you know, forget about it, this never happened. Wow. What was the justification for that? I, I, I guess, I mean, sexism, obviously, but was there any real justification given, or did they just was just beneath them. They just didn't even bother giving them a reason. Um, they didn't give them a reason. It was fought up the chain of command. Um, at that time, I mean, just like today, you also have Congress playing a, a role here, in fact, throughout World War One into World War Two, with women. So you're also dealing with the political side of it where you're not just dependent on the Army to make a decision, but you're also dependent on the political climate at the time. And, you know, we were in a far more, I don't want to say conservative time, but they came back from the war and they were expected to go back to their roles. And it wasn't something they talked about during the war because they didn't want to expose the fact that women were in combat. Right. So therefore, after the war, they didn't want to talk about it either. But yes, they were absolutely frozen out of all of their benefits. They basically didn't exist as far as the Army history was concerned. And I'm assuming they were not invited then to participate in the American Legion, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, any of these kinds of veterans organizations either. They weren't, wouldn't have been recognized there either. That's correct. In fact, one of their biggest beefs was that they never got their World War I victory medal, meaning that the it's not really a, a, a valor medal, but it's a medal of distinction that all the soldiers who served overseas and yeah. came home and fought in World War I received. 
Um, so they were frozen out of that as well. Denise Deems is our guest this morning. She's a writer, historian, and artist. She researches the history of women's service in World War I and World War II, but specializing in World War II. We're going to talk a little bit more, too, about her business because she's made props, and I think she's had some interesting stories about some of the props that she's made for various uh, productions. But you can find her website, www.iisoldier.com. So then World War II uh, breaks out, depending on when you're counting, but in Europe in, in 1939, um, the United States very slowly at first begins to mobilize. When do the first women start to get recruited for uh, for, for the armed services in the United States? Um, officially in April, May of 1942. Again, it depends on whether are you looking at the actual Congressional Act, when they introduce it. When did it actually get signed into bill here? But somewhere between um, late March and early May. Okay. And uh, initially, like I said, it, it was a small group of a few. That's why it was originally called the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. It was supposed to be an auxiliary, you know, like you think of the women's auxiliary. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was completely to the side and not part of the actual military. And that was a mistake that they made and had to fix when they sent the women overseas because uh, as an auxiliary, we're back to the World War One scenario where they didn't get death benefits if they were killed overseas. They weren't uh, covered under the Articles of War or the Geneva Convention. They really? technically weren't under Army jurisdiction. So they had to backpedal that and fix it kind of as things were spilling out. But so, yeah, so they officially go in in 42 there, there was talk, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the first lady, mm-hmm. was really pro-women, pro-equality, and she had been pushing in, you know, as early as 41, they could see the writing on the wall, and the British had already had women who were, um, I think that a polite term might be voluntarily, or voluntold, <laughs> or voluntarily constricted, uh-huh. um, because they were made to serve in some fashion, but that meant that they could join a factory or yeah. they could, you know, work in a job. They didn't necessarily have to join the military, but they had to participate in the war effort. Uh-huh. So, so Eleanor Roosevelt was looking at, and other people in the army were looking at what the British were doing. And when they first, when the United States first arrived in Europe, all the army air force bases were actually run by British women who had been filling the roles Again, of your office workers, um, some of your coders, yeah. people operating teletype, people operating radio. That was all filled by British roles when we got there. Yeah. So we kind of quickly realized that we might want to have our own staff. We, we have another break coming up. The time goes quickly. Uh, Denise Deems is our guest. We're talking about the role of women during World War II. She gave a very interesting uh, presentation to the McKeesport Regional History and Heritage Center uh, this past week for Women's History Month. Um where you you you've mentioned some of the roles that women played and who were in the women's uh, army corps during World War II and and you know talk about technical roles, code breaking, um, mathematical roles, uh, secretarial roles, switchboard operators, that kind of thing. Did they receive any self defense training? I mean, were they issued sidearms or hand to hand combat, anything like that? A few of them were okay, and I, I'm going to couch this a little bit yeah. later. You could have, they did do some firearms training. They did go through basic training. It was nothing compared to what men went through. Very, very few women were issued firearms 
and it was usually a 45 pistol, uh-huh. and it was usually just for, okay, you're carrying something important, something um, that was classified, something that they didn't want you to be hijacked. You but were a courier for you were a courier for instance carrying confidential or top secret documents. Absolutely. Okay. But okay. in general, even their uh, military police were not armed. Okay. We, we we have to take the second break. When we come back, I want to ask you a little bit about how this changed after World War II, how these women in the Women's Army Corps paved the way for other women to uh, join the, the military in the United States. And then I want to ask you about this prop business uh, that you are engaged in, which is kind of interesting to me, okay? Sure. Uh, Denise Deems is our guest for a few more minutes. We're talking about the role of women during World War II. You can visit her website, www.iisoldier.com. You can find her on Facebook and Twitter. She's D. Deems on Twitter. You're listening to Two Rivers 30 Minutes, broadcasting from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation in downtown McKeesport. We'll be back in 30 seconds to wrap things up. You're listening to Two Rivers 30 Minutes, a production of Tube City Community Media Incorporated. If you've got an idea for someone who you'd like us to interview or a question or comment, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Tube City Online. Welcome back. Our guest for a few more minutes is Denise Deems. She is an author, writer, artist, entrepreneur. She's got a website called WW2Soldier. You can find out more information, WWIISoldier.com. You can find her on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, She researches the history of women uh, during World War II. So after World War II... How did things change? Did things get better for women who wanted to serve in the in the military? Did were they more integrated into the services? Um, yes, in 1947. Um, so when they made them into the military in 1943, basically that was for the duration. And then in 1947, when the generals came back, and General Eisenhower wrote, you know, wonderful things about everything that the WAX did and how they supported him and. So there was a movement that came out in 1947, again, 47, 48, depending on when you want the bill to start and who signed it. When they came out with, okay, now every woman can enlist in the regular Marines, the regular Army, the regular Air Force, and the regular Navy. And that basically opens the door for women to join the service, even though it would be a slow grind up until I'm even Vietnam, the yeah. Vietnam number of women was less than the ones that went to World War II, despite the fact that, um, you know, so much time had passed and there were so many more openings for women. It was still considered a bit of a taboo huh. to be in. Um, and obviously today, one of the coolest things, I had found an article from Vietnam that basically read like a World War II article, where it was, you know, Local girls join, you know, Women's Army Corps, take their first flight on an airplane, first time out of the Pittsburgh (laughs) area. And you're thinking, I could have just torn the date off the headline and changed the pictures a little bit so that they didn't have, you know, the 60s hair. Yeah. It would be a 40s article. I mean, they were treated very much the same way by the media at the time. You go to today, and, and I pulled up, you know, a couple of modern women articles, and the best one I could find was the um, the recent uh, Pennsylvania National Guard yeah. woman who actually went on to get her ranger tabs. So we went the whole way from, okay, well, you can operate my switchboard because you have a pretty voice, to let's operate um, all the machinery and break the codes and do anything that you possibly can so that 
we have extra men to go into combat, to then, um, okay, well, we want you here, but not as many of you, and we want to make sure that you're pretty, and maybe we'll take back some of those jobs, to, okay, you can do anything you want to do, and I guess you should go to West Point. And so that happens in 74, and to the point today where you now have women going into, you know, elite forces like the Rangers. So that's a pretty cool progression. But I'm assuming, uh, Denise Deems is our guest for a few more minutes, and we're talking about the the role of women in World War II, but also more broadly the role, how the role of women in the armed services changed uh, over the years. I'm assuming, you you talked about how sort of patronizing and condescending the the media coverage was, and and also um, the Army brass and the uh, Congress and, and elected officials were at the time. I'm assuming that the women who made these gains really had to fight every step of the way, that, that, that nothing was really given to them. Is that accurate? That is very accurate. Yeah. And a lot of times those first women didn't make it so that the next group could. Yeah. I, I want to switch gears uh, before we let you go, uh, because your, your business World War II soldier, um, one of the things you do is you recreate items from the World War II era. It, it, tell, tell me about that. Who, what is the market for that? You mentioned that you are a, a World War II reenactor, I think. Um, is, is it mostly for that? Is it for movies and TV shows? What's it for? Well, it's for a little bit of everything. Yeah. I've worked with um, a numerous museums, including the Smithsonian, um, the World War II Museum in New Orleans, one of the airborne museums, a couple of museums that um, overseas. And basically what they want to do is, let's say we have a package of 80 year old rations nobody <laughs> wants to display that in a case uh-huh. um, the cans are going to explode yeah. the crackers will disintegrate so i go in and i make a reproduction product that in all in for all sake of argument looks exactly on the outside like the original they can put that in a glass case what sort of materials do you work with this the same materials they would have used in the 1940s or are you using more modern materials a little bit of both. Uh-huh. Um, by and large, I use cardboard by the case <laughs> and by the pound. Um, As the military but, did too, right? You know, yeah, I mean, and, and we use a lot of different, I use a lot of paper and, and stuff to create different forms, cardboard to create different packaging. All of the gear itself is all outsourced by another company. Um, I have my own screen printing shop where we do a lot of the, every base had a t-shirt. So yeah. we carry a lot of those T-shirts. Uh, I found the originals, and including actually a Women's Army Corps shirt, which was really exciting for me to find that I could actually get my hands on one. Huh. Um, but yes, we do use some modern materials. I have about five or six 3D printers, yeah. and we'll use them in places where it's a short job. You know, I have metal-looking filaments that yeah. I will use instead of real metal. You have worked on a few movies providing items for. What are some of the, if you, if you can say, what are some of the movies or TV shows that people may have seen where some of your props may have been? Um, sure. So uh, Greyhound with Tom Hanks. Oh, sure. And Dunkirk, and Dunkirk Hacksaw Ridge. Um, we did a little bit for Agent Carter. Okay. Um, I've had, let me put it to you this way, the company that does the digitizing work for Call of Duty, we've supplied them. I'm assuming it went to the new Call of Duty VR, but I can't actually say that. Um, We also worked on uh, a production on Broadway called A Soldier's Play, which is actually up for Tony for set design, so I'm kind of excited. I mean, I'll never actually see the Tony or sniff it, but it's really cool. 
Um, so those are the big productions we, we've worked on that everybody would recognize. We, we get some phone calls where I'm shooting a Nazi zombie movie. I need stuff. <laughs> well, who, who amongst us hasn't been shooting a Nazi zombie movie and needed stuff? Let's be honest. Denise Deems is a writer, artist, entrepreneur. Uh, she researches the history of women in World War II, and she's got a website, uh, www.iisoldier.com. She recently gave a presentation to the McKeesport Regional History and Heritage Center that was called This Is Our War Two. You can find out more about the McKeesport Regional History Center at mckeesportheritage.org. Denise, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us this morning. Thank you. Um, it was a blast. And thank you all for listening to Two Rivers 30 Minutes, broadcasting from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation in downtown McKeesport. So long for now. You've been listening to Two Rivers 30 Minutes, copyright Tube City Community Media Incorporated. Opinions expressed on this program are not those of Tube City Community Media Incorporated. Listener support makes this program possible. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our website at tubecityonline.com and click on the donate link. You can also get a free subscription to this program and other podcasts at our website using Apple's iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you've got a question or comment, we hope you'll write to us. Our address is Tube City Community Media Incorporated, P.O. Box 94, McKeesport, PA, 15134. You can email us at TubeCityTiger at gmail.com or call us at area code 412-614-9659. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at TubeCityOnline. Online.